In this podcast, we discuss the ongoing impacts of coronavirus, new economic data, positivity in property, a Liberal Party reshuffle, Andrew Forrest's investments, King Street's exodus, the Fashion Festival, a Roy Hill contractor goes under, and junior miners. Mark My Words is brought to you by Market Creations. G'day and welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Dan Wilkie and joining me today with both Marks absent is our Matt McKenzie. Excited to be here, Dan. Uh, welcome, Matt. Now, we're going to kick off this week having a look at something that's been hitting the headlines and a lot of people probably getting sick of hearing about it is the coronavirus, but it is probably the most important story that's on the website this week. Um, it's forced the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates by 25 basis points. That's a new record low, and uh, that's actually spooked the investment markets. The share market actually started the week on a re- relatively good note. It snapped a seven-day losing streak on Tuesday, but since then, uh, it's continued to tumble. Uh, there was reports of COVID-19 deaths in the UK and in Switzerland, which smashed European markets. Outbreaks in the US spooked, spooked investors there, and the Australian market uh, just followed suit. Uh, in positivity, especially for the WA economy, gold hit a one-week high overnight on Thursday. It's the usual story of investors seeking a safe, safe haven. But the surprising one to me is the iron ore market. Uh, iron ore hit US $89 per tonne yesterday, and shipments haven't been disrupted. Now, there was a lot of commentary around when the coronavirus was first hitting that steel production, uh, the factories could be shutting down and it's going to be really bad news for the iron ore miners, but uh, the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies said that no shipment, not a single shipment has been disrupted, so that's great news. Um, The big miners, FMG, BHP and Rio Tinto, have implemented a suite of new hygiene practices and put some travel restrictions on their workers, Um, but that's about the only impact in the iron ore sector. So... Uh, pretty positive uh, for WA there. Um, and sticking with economic data, Matt, the, um, the GDP stats came out earlier this week. So can you take us through uh, those numbers? Yeah, so this is the December figures for the December quarter, and GDP grew by 0.5% in the December quarter, which was a surprise to me, uh, and it was slightly above the consensus estimates. On an annualised basis, so across 2019, the economy grew 2.2%. Uh, which was a little bit better than the 12 months to September. So not so bad. I mean, they're not strong figures, but they're better than they could be, uh, given the circumstances, particularly with the bushfires at the end of last quarter. I think people thought it would be a little bit uh, softer than that. Now, WA fell 0.2% in the December quarter. So that's uh, state final demand. Obviously, exports aren't included in that. So it's not a full picture of the economy, but it does show what's happening sort of in the domestic market. Nationally, Consumption growth was actually okay. It was just over 1% uh, for the year 2019. Dwelling investment, however, down more than 12%. Uh, So people aren't really buying houses as much as they were the year before, which I think people well know. Uh, The only thing I'd add to all of this is there's some discussion out this morning that the federal government might actually be launching a stimulus package. They're talking about using wage subsidies. It's something they've done with um, with New Start, uh, people off New Start, and particularly older workers, they'll give businesses money to try and encourage them to hire people. It's done a lot, I think, in Scandinavia. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they take that approach, Dan. Mm, no, it'll be interesting to see, oh, I guess, the fallout of that, and if that stimulus actually helps rebound from, uh, I guess, the, the COVID-19 crisis that's, that's emerging. Now, also this week, um, there was some more welcome news in the property sector. It seems that we're talking about this every week now, um, which is good for homeowners uh, across Perth. Now, three of the last four months, Perth's median house price has risen, according to CoreLogic, albeit it is a a gradual pace in February, 0.3%. And the one month of the last uh, four months that it didn't, it was actually flat. So that's pretty welcome news for a market 
that's coming from a pretty low base. Um, it's the most positive median price data since 2014, but uh, that low base is very low. Perth values do remain 21% below their peak. Sales activity is starting to rise, they're up 5% in, in February. And we also re- reported last week some tightness in the rental market, the vacancy rates hit 2.2%. Uh, push has come to shove there with competition uh, ramping up for uh, residential tenancies. And Rewa reported that the median rent has risen for the first time since 2017. So some continued positivity in the housing sector. Um, so that's, yeah, has to be good news for homeowners. Now, Matt, um, going back to politics, uh, there was a bit of a reshuffle in, in the Liberal Party um, in the lead-up to next year's election. Can you take us through uh, what Lisa's Har- Lisa Harvey's new team looks like? Yeah, so she's made a few changes to her front bench. They're not massive changes, but there's some interesting ones. So Steve Thomas has picked up finance from Dean Nalder. Now, I recall he actually used to hold a very senior economic portfolio uh, some years ago. He actually was, was in Parliament uh, in the 2000s. I think he might have been shadow treasurer, so he's got a fair bit of experience there. Tony Kristovich, uh, or Kristisevich, uh, has picked up housing. Uh, he was previously sort of special min- special shadow minister for homelessness. And I will say this, I've bumped into this guy a few times in the past few months, and he talks about homelessness a lot. He's very interested in the topic, so it kind of makes sense that he's in doing housing. Um, Nalda, Dean Nalda, who's the shadow treasurer, used to have the shadow finance portfolio as well, but that's been shifted to Steve Thomas. So I'm not sure, maybe they're trying to expand the economic team there or maybe try to balance out the decision-making a bit. Sean Lestrange lost housing, but he's picked up emergency services, racing and gaming and defence issues. Those are three small portfolios, but basically all ones where stuff's happening. I mean, emergency services with all the bushfire talk uh, that we saw over summer, racing and gaming with the TAB sale. Defence issues is um, something that's grown in prominence in the past few years in WA. Mike Nahan, the former leader, uh, lost the planning portfolio because he'll be leaving Parliament. That's gone to Chorn Simmer, a young up-and-comer. John McGrath's also leaving Parliament, so that he's lost racing and gaming. Uh, Nick Garan picked up the commerce portfolio, famous for his uh, for his social stances. So we'll see what his views are when it comes to economic and business matters. And two other people to note, Jim Chown and Michael Mission have both been relegated to lower spots in their upper house tickets, but they've kept their shadow portfolios. So... They'll be busy for the next year, even if not necessarily afterwards, Dan. <laughs> That's a very cynical look at the election coming up next year, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, elections hard to predict uh, these days, and Labor possibly on shaky ground with no Ben Wyatt. Um, just uh, shifting focus now, Andrew Forrest, the state's richest man, has made some pretty significant investments this week, Matt. Um, what's going on there? So he's bought 240 million shares in... Fortescue Metals Group, his his pet company, his baby company, the one that he founded and created and made a, a massive, the third force, a giant in iron ore. Um, I think that tells you that he, he obviously thinks the share market's probably undervaluing what it, what it should be worth. So he's picked up some shares, scooped up 22 million shares. His total shares in Fortescue now worth 11 billion, or 11.2 billion, so it's a lot of money. To put it like this, in February he got paid out a dividend of about 828 million in FMG, so a bit of a little bit of loose change there for him to spend. Andy? He could stimulate the economy himself. <laughs> uh, he also invested in WindLab with uh, a company called Federation Asset Management, sort of in a partnership. They've done a $68 million takeover deal of this uh, company that had lots of um, IP for wind turbine technology. It was ASX listed. I think WindLab have built uh, about a gigawatt of, at least it says on their website, they've completed a gigawatt of um, wind projects. So that's uh, a fairly significant demonstration, I think, of the potential for renewable energy and how investors are starting to take this up. 
Mm. Would there be a possibility of those rolling out to power the the FMG mines by any chance? Well, that is is possible. You'd have to have probably a bit of storage to go with it, but Mm. battery power in particular is is coming down in price, and obviously pump storage is pretty competitive. So if you had an old mine site, you filled it up with water, you could do pumped hydro and use that to back up your power. Interesting. Uh, um, I think when uh, Andrew Forrest makes investments, a lot of people take notice, so um, people are probably going to be knocking down the door of WinLab (laughs) over the next few weeks. Are you trying to grow your business? Does managing your brand, website and digital marketing needs sound overwhelming? Market Creations is a full-service marketing agency with over 20 years' experience. Market Creations can help make a difference. Um, Now, one of the um, stories that uh, hit headlines on business news this week was the continuing exodus um, of King Street luxury retail tenancies. The latest was Tiffany & Co. They opened up a new store at Rain Square on Thursday. Now, owner owner of the Rain Square precinct, Charter Hall, they've been really successful in luring luxury brands um, from King Street after they spent $90 million on the retail component at Rain Square. Tiffany's opening follows Louis Vuitton and Kayla's Jewelry shifting uh, last year. And Watches of Switzerland, which is Perth's only official Rolex retailer, they're also on the move. So uh, they'll be opening up later this year at Rain Square. Um, obviously, as a result of that, King Street's reputation as a luxury shopping sp- precinct has taken quite a bit of a hit. But there's uh, several high-end uh, brands remain there. Gucci and Prada come to mind. But it'll be really interesting to see how King Street landlords fill the vacant tenancies in coming months. And I was actually surprised when I was having a look through the uh, building applications data of, at the City of Perth and saw that the Tiffany fit-out cost $5.4 million. Wow. So these high-end stores, I mean, you've got to be you got to have a bit in your pocket to go in there and buy things, but my, my word, $5.4 million for a shop. That's, yeah, right. uh, that's an amazing number. Now, sticking with high fashion, Matt, uh, you've got some news about the Fashion Festival. Yeah, so I've been following this pretty closely in the past few weeks, uh, uh, months even, and the, the Perth Fashion Festival entity has gone into liquidation. And this is, as is sometimes the case with, with liquidations and insolvencies and administrations and all the rest of it, there's quite a lot of story behind this as to exactly how all this happened. So listeners will know that the Fashion Festival went into administration uh, last year. They'll know that the Fashion Council ran a smaller version of the festival um, just to sort of keep it alive. Uh, but there's a lot of complexity behind this. So the Perth Fashion Festival entity, which was owned by uh, Mariella Harvey Hanrahan and Tony Sage, who's a bit of a famous iron ore um, entrepreneur, owned the Perth Glory as well. Uh, that business ran the festival more or less in the past few years. They've been involved for, for 20 years. They had 124 creditors owed 1.1 million. Uh, about half of that, I think, was actually to, to directors. Um, basically, they were going to have a deed of company arrangement to save the company. Tony Sage was going to put in $200,000. Now, all I know is that Tony was also going to sell the Perth Glory. It didn't happen. A few days later, the docker was withdrawn. Now, I don't know. I mean, are those things related? Listeners can speculate. Um, But what we can say is that the biggest uh, debtor to the Perth Fashion Festival was actually the Fashion Council uh, with $459,000. So the Fashion Council of WA owed the festival entity almost half a million dollars. Some of it was for future IP use, but a lot of it was for receivables, money that was owed. Um, it's hard to determine exactly what all those things, what what exactly it was all for, without looking at the contracts. But um, FCWA 
based on reading what the uh, administrators had, had written to creditors, uh, FCWA didn't want to pay any of this money basically to Perth Fashion Festival, or not an awful lot anyway. Um, and so the, the festival entity has all these creditors, all these people working in the industry. They can't get their money. They can't get money out of the Fashion Council. And to add to that, Business News reported uh, a few weeks ago that a lot of the people that worked on this year's festival with the Fashion Council still waiting for their money nearly, I mean, four or five months later. So there's... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of investigations still to do into this topic. I'm interested, I'm exploring it, uh, but uh, a lot of people, ultimately subcontractors and contractors who are wearing pain. Mm, sounds like a lot of aggrieved parties there and there's going to be a bit to run on, on this story. Now, sticking with our companies uh, encountering difficulties, a contractor on uh, Gina Reinhardt's Roy Hill iron ore operation has gone under mat. Um, take us through that one. Yes, yeah, so Juro Felguera, which is a Spanish company, uh, worked on the construction, uh, and they had a very they had a very interesting time up there because it led them to a lot of court uh, cases. Basically, this is a Spanish company, and the the parent over in Spain has withdrawn support for the local arm of the business. It's gone into administration with some gents from Cortamenta looking after it. Um, they owe about $90 million to creditors. The biggest creditor is Transglobal, $30 million owed there. Now, Duro argued uh, that, I, I think there was a court case about this actually, Duro argued, no, Transglobal owes us $26 million. So they had a difference of opinion there. Uh, the interesting thing is, Duro has $27 million in trust accounts, $14 million in the bank. That's not enough to pay off all their creditors. And, I mean, you, you can't know the great details of what goes on here, but it's interesting that the parent company, instead of putting in the $50 million to pay all their creditors, has just opted to pull the plug entirely. Um, Jura had a very difficult time uh, on Roy Hill, particularly because they ended up in a court case with Samsung CNT. Uh, they were asking for $310 million. This was a, a battle, I think there was arbitration, there was Supreme Court hearings. In the end, they came out with $84 million. So, Juro, uh, you know, doing this construction work, they ended up uh, spending a lot of time in courtrooms instead, and they've had enough, more or less. Interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that develops and see if any local contractors can fill the breach there. Now, uh, looking forward to our next print edition, and uh, our, our reporter Jessica Mascioni has uh, looked at the junior miners sector. And unfortunately, many from the industry are painting a bit of, bit of a bleak picture um, for, for junior resources companies. Um, several have suggested that the model might be broken. Um, it's very hard for smaller exploration companies to, to raise money on the ASX. Uh, people have been very risk-averse in recent years, and they're really not likely to invest in undeveloped projects or projects that aren't in close proximity to other discoveries or, uh, or deposits. Now, a BDO report from the December quarter showed that there was only 651 ASX-listed explorers in December last year. That was down from 865 in September 2013, so the, the ranks are thinning. Um, the results, they may reflect difficulty for smaller explorers to raise capital and stay, stay viable. That's been a trend in Canada and South Africa, previously good markets. And um, the junior miners really don't have strong environmental, social and governments initiatives, which investors have really been attuned to in recent years. Industry leaders putting forward suggestions saying that a base level of environment, social and governance initiatives, maybe some partners of joint ventures with major explorers, partnering with tech, tech companies, that could, I, I, I guess, convince investors to get on board. Um, and Liam Twigger from PCF Capital also suggested at a recent mining club lunch that the possibility of dual listing on Chinese stock exchanges could help the junior sector. So not sure 
about the risk profile there, but uh, interesting um, take that one. So uh, look out for that. That's going to go online early next week and uh, will be in our next print edition. Now, that's all that we have time for on the podcast this week. Um, But just before we go, we've got a politics and policy event next week. Uh, Opposition Lisa Harvey is set to outline her economic vision for WA in the lead up to the March 2021 election. I'm sure Lisa's going to provide a fascinating insight into how the Liberal Party plans to approach the election. So jump onto the BN website or call 92882100 to get your tickets now. And also coming up in April, make sure that you keep April 8 free as Peter Tinley will be on hand to provide an insight into the housing, fisheries and Asian engagement portfolios. Thanks for listening. Market Creations is so much more than a full-service marketing agency. Market Creations has a full-service information, communications and technology team that can help grow your business and manage your essential IT requirements. From email, phone, data and cloud services, Market Creations can help make a difference.